welcome to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning with Wigan and Dana, the show where CPAs, insurance professionals, investment brokers, trust companies, CFPs, and more can firm up on their understanding of estate planning strategies so they can better guide their clients to make wise decisions with their legacy. Future Focus is hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. Subscribe to Future Focused Sophisticated Estate Planning on your favorite podcast platform and share episodes with your clients. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron and Michael. Well, welcome to Future Focused. I'm your host, Michael Clear, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Aaron Nichols. Really excited to be here. Today's topic is one that hits close to both of our hearts, and that's planning for our pets. We thought it would be fun to take a topic that we hear periodically from our clients about and just provide some insight into various ways to address that problem that many of our clients come to us with. I have to chuckle though, Michael, when you say close to both of our hearts, because the 10 years that we've known each other, you have made fun of me and my love of animals frequently. Maybe a little closer to some parts than others. Well, but in all fairness, I've had a turtle. I've had a gerbil. I have not needed pet trusts for them. And we have a dog. So we will always have a pet. You have several pets as well. I do. Yeah. And, and maybe it's something that I've thought about more so than someone with just a dog, because I do have horses. Taking care of the horse is a big deal. So it certainly has come up before how we plan for those animals after we die. And large animals come with the clear thinking that you have to think about it because with the ownership of the horse to somebody after your death comes considerable expense. And for a lot of our clients, this is where that comes. Let's go back to the basics though. So how would you at least designate somebody to take care of your pets after your death? Good question. Well, I think sort of as a baseline matter, it's important for people to understand that in general, the law surrounding estate planning does not view animals in the same way that they do people and that animals are really no different than a car or personal effects of any sort. So As a practical matter, addressing the disposition of your animals in your estate planning documents is very important. For us in Connecticut, at least, we'll either in our will or maybe in a revocable trust, we may include specific language regarding who receives the animals. Yeah, and I think it's probably prudent for any animal person, even if the client is younger and They're not thinking about what will happen to their current pets. You know, if they can anticipate that no matter what, they're likely to have pets throughout their life, then it makes sense to think about who you might want to entrust with the care of those pets later on. I think step one in those circumstances is to be specific. Sometimes our clauses relating to property, tangible property, are general and say things like, property will go to my children as they may agree. Here, you can say that it may go to my children as they may agree. I think I would err towards being more specific with a pet on who will receive the pet. Arguably, pets are as sort of as non-fungible as things can get. 
We don't want yes. there to be disagreement really either way. We don't want them to draw straws either to get the pet or to not get the or pet. Or to not get the pet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, lots of times people also consider the added expense. So what are some of the strategies you've seen relating to addressing that expense? I think the most common is to include with the disposition of the animal some disposition of cash to take care of the animal. So Mm -hmm. if you leave your dogs to your next door neighbor, then it's very common to also leave a fixed sum of money to the neighbor conditioned on the neighbor accepting the bequest and the bequest not lapsing. Put another way, the animal is still alive at your death and the neighbor accepts the animal to get the money. You're effectively giving the neighbor the pet and the sum of money designed to be used for the care of the pet, but not necessarily having to be used for that purpose. Right. And I think that's a great point. It does come up and it'll lead to our more interesting conversation because a lot of people do think that they can control just within a bequest what Mm -hmm. someone can or can't do with property. And I can say in my will, I leave my horses to my sister together with $20,000 to take care of the horses. I can say that, but if I can't control what happens with the money beyond the direction in my will or revocable trust. Nonetheless, it's a straightforward manner. And it's it's often kind of that first piece where we go with people. We say, if you want to supply an amount of money to them, the easiest way to be to say, you get the animal and X for the animal's care and just make it so it's an outright bequest to them. The next question before we jump to trusts is the how much question. How much is enough? What's the right amount to give somebody? We think about a dog or a cat. You understand the life expectancy, the lifespan. You understand what your medical costs are. And maybe you multiply that out and then give it a cushion or you multiply it out and then you times it by two just to make sure. But if you have multiple pets or you're Aaron and you have horses, I think it's a harder calculation. It absolutely is a harder calculation. I think backing into life expectancy of the animal and average cost over a period of years is a great way to do it. Although I think that a lot of animal lovers want to play it safe. They're entrusting their pet to someone that they love and otherwise probably don't mind having a little bit extra. So they're comfortable in saying, my sister gets my horses and $2 million. I certainly hope that $2 million is not what it takes to sustain these horses throughout their lifetime. But I love my sister and I don't mind her getting the extra after the horses are gone. So certainly we do hear that a lot. It's an interesting way to give some more money to people if that's what the client wants to do. I think sometimes we'll have a situation where we want more structure. That bequest isn't enough, or maybe it is in fact a large sum of money. They want to provide a little more structure there. And in that situation, we will recommend or at least discuss the use of a pet trust. What are some interesting aspects of a pet trust? 
Going back to the treatment of animals in the law, they're not people, they're tangible property. So for a long time, pet trust didn't exist because the law viewed trust as something that required a beneficiary capable of enforcing the terms of the trust. And obviously a pet isn't going to enforce Mm -hmm. anything. So certainly now every state in the United States has some sort of law pertaining to trusts for the care of animals. Since we just talked about how much to leave, it's certainly worth noting that a lot of these jurisdictions have a reasonableness standard when it comes to the amount of money that can go into a pet trust. So maybe in that scenario, $2 million to a trust that my sister uses to take care of the horses, it might not fly if challenged in some jurisdictions. Well, the horse might be fine. That might be a fine number for the horse, but maybe for a dog, it would be a little bit high, right? (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's why it's a little bit different from a trust normally, right? Because a trust, we have property, we have a trustee, and we have a beneficiary. So the pet trusts are really a statutory creation that allow the pet to be the beneficiary in a way. In Connecticut, we can use ours as an example. We'll have a trustee who's in charge of the administration of the trust, who's in charge of investments of the trusts, and who's in charge of distributions, distributions for the benefit of the pet. We can set up certain terms relating to it. We can keep it very broad. We can make it specific. The trustee doesn't have to be the same person as the person who ultimately takes care of the pet. It can be different. And then in Connecticut, we have this rule called a trust protector, who is that person, since the pet can't walk into court and enforce their rights, who is the person that is given that power under the law to enforce the rights of the animal. And to our loyal listeners who remember from many episodes ago when we talked about trusts, and we might have used the word trust protector to describe someone else entirely who has a removal and replacement power within common law trusts. Here, it's simply serving as almost a guardian ad litem of sorts. If we conceptualize the animal as a minor, it's the person who is tasked with advocating for the animal's best interests, really. And I think what we have is so we've created a trust. It's going to last. It's going to be limited in terms of pets that the person had at the time of their death. The trust won't enable the continuation of a line, per se. It'll be effective for the lifetime of the pet. And then who gets it afterwards? It could be a situation where you can, in fact, overfund it. To some extent, if you have a dog and you say, look, we're going to put $200,000 into the pet trust to make sure that their care is always there. And then at the animal's death, it goes to X. It can go to other people. It may go to the people who cared for the pet during their lifetime. It may go to completely different people. It may go to charity. You'll have that control ultimately of who receives those funds. Certainly what a client decides in that circumstance really depends on their comfort level. Presumably if they're creating a pet trust in lieu of just a simple outright bequest, like we discussed previously, you do favor that structure and perhaps want some sort of checks and balances on the use of the funds within the trust. So 
thinking about who administers the trust, who takes care of the animal, and then who gets the property at the end are all relevant considerations. I do recall someone asking me once, well, you know, if the person who cares for the animal is the person who gets the property at the animal's death, what is preventing that person from just offing the animal? To that, you have to say you're trusting the person, right? We have to have some faith that the person you're leaving your pet to will make the decisions that you would have. There's no ultimate guarantee there, but other than maybe we're picking the wrong person at that point. If that's the concern, maybe maybe the person that we're picking to care isn't actually the right person. I would say so. So I think that's a great overview of that planning. I think, you know, when we have those opportunities, when clients ask these questions, those are the two most common strategies, the more straightforward, be specific, come up with a, an identifiable amount of money to be used for it. And then if you want more structure around it, the use of a pet trust. Yeah, absolutely. And just remembering that the law treats these animals like property. So we need to plan for that accordingly. And yeah, this was a good overview of the options that you have. Well, thank you, Aaron. I enjoyed talking to you about it. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning, hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. At Wigan and Dana, our aim is preserving the wealth that a family has worked so hard to create and pride ourselves in offering value-driven solutions and results. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, share episodes with your clients, and follow our highly talented, creative, and experienced lawyers on LinkedIn for even more great insight. We'll see you next time on Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning.